This week on Behind the Lens, it was a rough week for the establishment at the ballot box. All three tax propositions in the city backed by the mayor's office failed by wide margins. We'll talk about what comes next. In a hotly contested runoff for district attorney, Jason Williams prevailed over Kiva Landrum. We'll discuss what that means in criminal justice. And a strongly worded opinion from a federal magistrate recommended denial of the city's request to halt the construction of the jail facility known as Phase 3. Also in election news, another runoff, two-term school board incumbent Leslie Ellison lost to challenger J.C. Romero by a wide margin, and the superintendent of schools handed in his charter school contract renewal recommendations to the board, and only one school of 18 is at risk of non-renewal. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining me on the podcast this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Good morning, Michael. Good morning to you. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen's also here. Hi, Marta. Hello, Carolyn. And the Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Morning. So, Michael, um, big loss for Mayor Cantrell this week at the ballot box. All three tax propositions, which her office had backed, failed overwhelmingly in the December 5th election. What happened? Uh, what happened? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so like you said, um, voters pretty clearly um, said no to all three of these proposals. Um, I believe the, the, the highest proportion of yes votes any got was 44%. We don't know for sure what went into ultimately this going to a no vote. I'll say what happened in the run up to this election. It was a really busy, you know, week or two, you know, coming up to this election. So, so in those two weeks, we saw the Cantrell administration really ramp up their campaign to get the to get the word out about voting yes on these um, um, millages. Um, and in that campaign, we saw them be increasingly misleading um, and, and, and increasingly be willing to give out false information um, about these millages. At the same time, you had a no on two campaign that kind of at the same time ramped up. So, so you had both of these campaigns that were really kind of reaching their peak right before election day so i'm typically really bad at predicting elections but with this one i really had no idea what was going to happen but you know it, it went from something that was you know back in august and september when we were writing about this something that was pretty obscure a smaller you know kind of city issue something that really kind of took center stage um in, in new orleans politics and i will say that it appears from the results that either or both of, of these things happen, that either that the mayor's increasingly forceful um, and misleading, as Michael said, campaign backfired on, on her, or the, the vote no on two, which was doing a lot, of, uh, a lot of phone banking and canvassing, from what I understand, um, was successful. It was probably a combination of the two. And because in early voting, which ended a, a, a week or so before the, the election day, Proposition 2, which was by far the most controversial of these three, that was the one that, that actually uh, cut the library taxes by 40%. Proposition 2 uh, in early voting was 52% yes to 48% no. And ultimately, it, the, uh, the final vote tally was uh, 43% yes to 57% no. So had this election taken place a couple of weeks earlier, it might have uh, it might have turned out differently. Hmm. 
So what happens next? Uh, these these taxes weren't the the millage wasn't set to expire until the end of next year anyway. So what happens now? Right. So, so like you said, this was a attempt. You know, th this is a package of property taxes that expire at the end of next year, at the end of 2021. Um, and this, you know, we focused a lot on how this would repackage those property taxes. So the big, you know, the big issue being that it was taking 40% of the library's funding and distributing it other places. But what it also did, it, it renewed the taxes for another 20 years. Um, so since this hasn't passed now, like you said, we're looking at this um, deadline next year um, of when all these millages are just going to expire and disappear unless um, the city council votes to put another ballot measure or multiple ballot measures you know, to voters next year. So immediately after um, the election, I believe it was the next morning, um, Mayor Cantrell came out and said that um, there were no plans, no intention to, to put another millage before voters next year, um, which would in effect um, allow the library millage to run off, would actually result in an even bigger cut and more like 50% uh, cut to the library, which, you know, to me doesn't totally make a lot of sense. You know, the, the, the city is hard strapped for revenue. Mayor Cantrell is known for chasing any revenue that she can get, um, you know, to, to bolster the city. Um, so, you know, it, I'm not really sure what the strategy there is in terms of not putting any millage proposal before the, the, the voters, but I will say that the mayor isn't necessary for that to happen. Um, ultimately, it's the city council that votes um, to put this on the ballot. Now, this was, you know, this year's proposal was, you know, was designed by the mayor and it was put on the ballot, you know, by the city council at the request of the mayor. Um, however, there are options for the city council to act if the mayor doesn't want to be involved. So. Really what comes next um, is a little bit unclear. Another thing that we're you know, keeping our eyes on right before the election, Mayor Cantrell had said that if the millage proposal didn't pass, that she would, be, she would be forced to escalate current city worker furloughs into layoffs. So, and like, you know, this has been covered by, by us, by um, the Times-Picayune, um, it's unclear why the failure of these millages would, would result in immediate layoffs. Um, like you said, um, you know, the, these taxes will stay in place next year, so the revenue will still be there. It won't be allocated in the exact way um, that the Cantrell administration wants, um, but it's still unclear how or why that would lead to layoffs. So that's another thing that we have to look out for. Yeah, the thing about that is the city council in November passed a budget already for 2021 and underlying the budget was the current millage rates not the proposed ones mayor cantrell kept saying spite of that that the the proposed millage rates were baked in or built into the 2021 budget it was hard to see how that was i believe michael went to the administration a few times to ask and we never got an answer in part of the same interview when i believe when she said that she was not currently considering a, a renewal, um, she also continued to say that uh, 2021 could look bad because these failed to pass. And again, we, we don't know why. But uh, a question I might have for Michael, and I'm not sure if, uh, if he can answer this yet, or maybe he, he can answer this without telling us um, you know, who, who he's been talking to at this point, but is there, is there any indication from uh, council members that they are uh, intending to put some meetings together to take take a look at this in, in the near future? Yeah, so I, I think what we can expect is that in, in you know, what I'm hearing is that in, in January, um, the city council is going to um, 
convene a meeting to, to discuss the future of these taxes. So, I mean, I don't think there's any plan in place, but I think it's something that if the mayor is, is you know, if she's stepping back and saying, you know, I'm no longer being involved in this, I think that the city council is willing to kind of step up and, and you know, take control of that process. But, you know, they're going to be holding meetings about it, whether that, you know, actually follows through to another Miller's proposal next year. I mean, it's a long way to go. Yeah, I'd like to add, by the way, the mayor's announcement that she was not currently considering a renewal appeared to be a trigger, possibly. There might be other factors at play internally that I'm not aware of. Uh, it appeared to be a trigger for uh, the gambit to issue a note yesterday. Today is Thursday. This won't come out until Friday, but today is Thursday. The gambit uh, on Wednesday published a note apologizing for its endorsement of these propositions, saying that they didn't take a critical enough look at them, that they took the mayor at her word, and that uh, plead, you know, sort of pleaded for their readers to, to trust that they will do a better job in the future, which was kind of uh, an extraordinary thing for the gambit and something that I don't think they've ever done before. You, you may be loath to analyze this, but it seems that she spent a lot of political capital on this. You just explained that, that the council, independent of Mayor Cantrell, if necessary, will work to get something on the, on the ballot for the voters again. Would she continue to stay away from this process? I really don't know. I mean, you know, there's a question, you know, even to whether the city council really would go forward, you know, w with their own proposal. Again, how this process plays out, I think that the Cantrell administ administration is probably huddling and getting together and regrouping. They were probably counting on this passing. Like you said, they spent a lot of political capital on it. Um, they spent a lot of their time on it in the, in, in the past couple of weeks. Um, you know, I don't think that anyone has those answers right now. I don't think that the Cantrell administration knows exactly what it's going to do. I don't think the city council knows exactly what it's going to do. I don't think the library board knows what it's going to ask for. You know, I think that right now, um, you know, a lot of people are regrouping and trying to figure out what comes next. Um, so I certainly don't have those answers. Yeah, I mean, you're not the first person to make that observation um, about about the uh, political capital that went into this. You know, in spite of, of having a, a very uh, difficult first term as mayor, and we had things like Hard Rock, we had a cyber attack last year, and of course the pandemic, I think there was a fair amount of goodwill um, leading up to this campaign, uh, specifically in re related to cities' relative success in dealing with the with COVID nineteen compared to the rest of the state. Yep. And I, I'm not I'm not a pollster or anything, but my impression is that a lot of people are not feeling as good good about the the mayor's office as they were just a few weeks ago now mm. because of this campaign. And you know we're headed into a mayoral election year. Yeah, and and I'll just add one thing. You know, you asked. One reason why I was a little bit surprised is that, again, I'm not good at predicting elections, but one thing that I was thinking is that right now there are a lot of people that I think um, really commend Mayor Cantrell with her response to the coronavirus. Um, and I think that there's been, you know, like Charles said, from before the pandemic to now, I think that she's built up a, a lot of goodwill in New Orleans. I, I talked to people in City Hall who saw this as, you know, a referendum on Mayor Cantrell. Now, I'm not saying that's actually what it ended up being, but I think why a lot of people thought this was going to pass is that they saw it being tied to Cantrell's current popularity in the midst of this pandemic. And whether that has implications for Cantrell's popularity or, you know, whether this was kind of an, a, an aberration in that, I'm not really sure, but um, it was surprising to me. Okay, thank you. Thank you.
You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusen, and Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. The strength of The Lens lies in the highly qualified editorial and research staff, as well as the collaborative network of affiliated organizations. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. All right, Nick, in criminal justice, city councilman Jason Williams won the district attorney race over former former judge Kiva Landrum. This was a runoff election. How significant is that? What is this new administration going to look like? It's very significant. Um, Jason Williams ran as sort of a progressive prosecutor, which is which is a something we've been seeing across the country. Um, prosecutors that that are really focused on uh, ending mass incarceration and putting in place policies that are less punitive and, and sort of more focused on uh, what we would think of as, as the root causes of crime, things like mental illness, drug addiction, and trying to look at those issues outside of the criminal justice system. And Jason Williams sort of fashioned himself in that uh, broader movement. So it's it's pretty significant, I think, particularly when you think of what the district attorney's office has been in New Orleans for the past several decades. Um, I could be wrong, and, and Charles can maybe speak to this, but I think the New Orleans district attorney's office has probably gotten more negative national media attention between the Harry Connick administration and the Canizero administration than, you know, maybe any other in the country for, for sort of using hardball tactics, for, for wrongful convictions. Um, hiding evidence. So this is really uh, kind of a rebuke to, to those administrations and and Williams has, has really pledged to reform the office to look nothing like those, those past administrations. Mm. Uh, yeah, I would say I would say Nick is absolutely correct about the attention the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office has gotten across the spectrum of uh, you know criminal justice reform people who are focused on DA's offices, which you know in, includes you know very progressive people as well as a you know a coalition of, of right wing you know libertarians um, who follow these issues. Orleans Parish is always at the top of their list for what they would consider problematic DA's offices. And I'll, I'll quickly point out that, you know, a lot of that criticism, um, you know, and, and a lot of that has come to light. Before he was our fearless editor, Charles was reporting um, on the DA for a long time and came out with some major, major stories. So I think the lens and Charles in particular have played a big role in um, bringing that to, to national um, news. You know, I, I'm from New York and I know people who know about the lens because of Charles reporting on Canizero. So I, don't, I, you know, I think that had a big impact personally. Well, thank you, Michael, that's very nice. What we spoke about last week with this decision that's sitting at the Supreme Court right now regarding non-unanimous jury verdicts, do you think that'll be high on the list? It's hard to say, I mean, he has promised a lot, but one thing that's going on right now is that not a lot is going on right now because court is closed. Um, so, I do think that there's a way in which 
the fact that cases are, are sort of stalled out right now might give him a little bit of time to get it in place. Something he said he's going to have a civil rights division that will include a conviction integrity unit, and that it, within that will be where these case non unanimous jury cases are being reviewed. Um, he said he's going to have that set up within the first hundred days. So I'm not I'm not sure. He's also said that he's going to have every prosecutor in the office reapply for their jobs. So mm. that seems like that will be a significant amount of administrative work to to go through that process, and then um, presumably also have have um, have to hire outside uh, uh, applicants as well. So I think there will be a lot of work to be done. And as we've talked about, the his budget was cut quite significantly um, in this last budget session, thanks in part to, to Jason Williams' own maneuvering at the city council to get more money for the public defender's office. So where all those resources go is going to be, is, or you know, lack of resources go is going to be uh, something, something we're going to look out for. I would say that this administration at the DA's office is, is going to have a lot of eyes on it, both uh, locally and, and outside of New Orleans. In some cases, depending on how a politician handles things, the the length of the honeymoon period um, can can shorten um, as as the the list of promises promises has lengthened. So um, you know it'll be interesting to see what is done in the early days of this administration to at least show that he is trying to to come through on these promises. Hmm. The other story in your department is Michael North, a federal magistrate, issued a scorching rebuke to this rebuke to the city, recommending denial of their bid to stop building phase three. What did he say? So, so what he said is is that the city needs to keep moving forward to on on building this phase three facility of the New Orleans jail, which is um, intended to house people with with both serious mental illness and serious medical issues. Um, and the city in June tried to get out of this by saying that circumstances had changed and that they could no longer financially afford it and that um, the declining jail population as well as improved uh, mental health care at the jail uh, made it unnecessary. And North kind of deconstructed all those arguments and, and, and found that none of them uh, had merit in his, his view. It was really, it was quite a document. It was a, a scathing, scathing uh, opinion. At one point saying that he had lost all trust in the in the city of New Orleans as a litigant, as someone who's acting in good faith in this, in this, uh, in this litigation. It was, uh, it was 71 pages and it was a page turner throughout. Part of the city's argument against uh, building this thing was that it was going to cost $51 million, of which the city only had $36 million in, uh, in uh, FEMA money available. Right. Um, there's, you know, there's a big pot, uh, several pots that have all been consolidated into one large pot of FEMA money uh, left over from Katrina. And basically the, the, uh, the, the attorneys on the other side, I believe in particular, uh, the, um, the attorneys working for the jail and the uh, uh, compliance director were, uh, they, they did an analysis of the amount of FEMA money available for, for criminal justice projects and specifically the money that, was, that had been allocated to repla- replace jail buildings and found that there was quite a bit more than $36 million available. Um, and the, the, the judge, uh, Judge North, um, accepted those arguments.
Massachusetts, if, if, if I'm remembering correctly, and, and basically made the point and, and, and said that, well, you know, the city may want to use this money for other projects, uh, but just because it doesn't want to use it for, for this project doesn't mean that it's not there. And since, since, in his opinion, the city is contractually obligated to this, it should put that money toward this project. The other thing that is in play here um, is there's a lot of uh, community opposition to this jail. Um, and I think a lot of disappointment um, in the city uh, that it, if you're taking uh, Judge North's opinion at face value, if you're taking it seriously, that the, that the, that the city had an opportunity to stop this from happening and kind of botched it with bad arguments and contradictory arguments and arguments that changed from day to day. I think there, there's some disappointment there, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's even some disappointment from some of the plaintiff's attorneys who are a civil civil rights law firm and would tend to disagree with the building of new jail infrastructure as a principle. Yeah, I think that's accurate, and I think that there's definitely a sense from all parties in this that there are ways in which the city went about trying to get out of this agreement that, that were frustrating for them. And I think that, yeah, that really came through in this opinion um, was that there were just things that happened that uh, were outside of the, the actual merits of whether or not this facility should be built that, that were really frustrating for for the other parties and i mean one of the things that that north goes on about is that the city was attempting to make this a political issue which which he did not like he did not like uh you know he included a tweet from the mayor um in his opinion and said that basically he wouldn't be swayed by their rallying of, of community support or you know the community against this facility you know at the same time for people who are opposed to this new jail facility and think that we should not be treating mental illness in a jail, which, you know, any expert on mental illness will tell you is accurate. The nuances of the litigation are less important to them. And there's, you know, I think their point is why, like, take a step back. Why are we doing this when we could be, you know, spending that money, even, even if it's FEMA money on, on something else on, uh, you know, alternative treatment facilities, um, community mental health care. I think you're right that the sort of, uh, that, that the details of how the city handled this litigation are, are probably less important to a lot of these. I, I would point out, on the other hand, that a lot of those people have been working for years on, on coming up with plans for alternative treatment facilities. And the city has now, you know, sort of rhetorically taken, taken that up but has, has only actively gotten involved in that kind of planning in really the past few months and really hasn't gotten past the point of talking about a feasibility study for it. At some point you run up against, you run up against a, a, a deadline, um, which is that the state isn't, isn't willing to, isn't willing to uh, care for, for these, uh, these inmates anymore. And uh, the, the temporary measures that, that the, that the city had, had worked on and constructed already are, are only meant to be temporary and uh, you need somewhere. And again, I'll go back to the plaintiff's attorneys. I think for, for, for a group like that, they probably, you know, it's particularly frustrating and they just kind of threw their hands up in the air and, and said, well, you know, the city hasn't, hasn't worked on the alternatives um, and uh, this, this is where we are now.
I mean, one part of the story I found to be really interesting was when, like Charles said, in the past few months, the, the city has seemed to, to open up to this idea of retrofitting a floor of the jail or some of these other alternatives. Um, and the judge noted that it just wasn't a comprehensive plan yet. And why that stuck out to me is because, you know, in my reporting in City Hall, that also seems to be a pattern where the administration is coming out with broad ideas and calling them plans. Um, and I was surprised to see that leaking into federal court as well. Um, but, you know, uh, it's something that we see in City Hall and City Council. But again, you know, this is federal court. This is kind of a different, a different animal. I think that's fair. Part two of Mayor Cantrell's no good, horrible, terrible, very bad week, though. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if we said it, but she also uh, was supporting Keeba Landrum in the district attorney's race. So um, Ouch. that that was a, another hit yeah. there. Uh, although, you know, I'll note, um, as, as, work, as will her, her uh, political action committee, that uh, she, she did have some work success in her endorsements for uh, the Orleans Parish School Board which we'll talk about next. Nice segue then, thank you. Marta, uh, there were some decisions made at the ballot box this past week on the school board. Tell us about those. There were, so we, we have a, a handful of newcomers, we had two newcomers elected, we had two incumbents elected, and then we had uh, probably the most surprising story or most interesting, we had a incumbent defeated. J.C. Romero, an educator who works at Einstein Charter Schools and is openly gay, defeated Leslie Ellison, a two-term incumbent who has come under a lot of criticism for her views on the LGBT community. She narrowly missed getting elected in the previous contest, right? Right, like by less than 1% of the vote or less than 2% of the vote. So wow. that was a pretty, probably a pretty big blow to her <laughs> Yeah, yeah so, she had she had over forty. So you need fifty percent plus one to win in in the uh, in the primary. And she had something like forty nine point six in the in the primary. So she was she was just barely shy. And in in the general on Saturday, uh, Romero. I'm looking at it right now. Came out fifty five percent to as Ellison, the incumbents, forty five. So, so she she lost four percent from the primary to the general. So what happened there? I would guess that he benefited a bit from both the the DA's race being a big issue and the so it was kind of a reform in the district attorney's office and it was reform in terms of you know saving the library essentially. So I, I would guess that he benefited a bit from that. Not that this wasn't a highly contested race, anyways. But I would also say I think those are true. I think there was a I think there was a a very uh, you know concerted campaign over the over her past comments and and past you know sort of uh, lobbying for legislation that was uh, you know seen as uh, anti LGBTQ and it's possible that Romero also benefited from a, a lower turnout election that is tend that will tend to have a a uh, a, a votership that is that is. Um, more focused on each of the races um, in, in, in many cases. And, you know, so in a, in a, in a higher turnout, particularly a presidential election, you might often see a, a bigger incumbent advantage than you will in a lower turnout election. Just quickly to summarize the other races, um, you're seeing a lot of disappointment from the, the community that, you know, ran three, they ran three people to kind of challenge incumbents and none of those folks won, although they, they were pulled over 40% of the vote in all three races. Hmm. Um, but I think, 
when you hear criticism about the new board being seated, even though we're seeing some new faces, um, it is largely a, a board that is, you know, kind of on board with the with the education reform um, mindset that has been happening in the city. So um, okay. it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, over the next couple of months with the new board seated. Okay. And New Orleans Public School System Superintendent Henderson Lewis submitted his recommendations for charter school renewals. How does the process work and what what did he recommend? Right. So in this new, when I say new system, um, since 2018, when the recovery school district charters came back under local control of the Orleans Parish School Board, um, deciding who gets to stay open and who closes is largely up to Henderson Lewis and the superintendent seat himself. The board can only vote or the, the, the board only comes into play if they want to challenge his recommendation. And if they do that, they have to get it onto the agenda and they have to have a super majority or five out of seven members vote to overturn his recommendation. Hmm. Now, we saw that happen last year where they got the issue on the agenda and they had two schools up that he wanted to close. This is the other big, I would say, disadvantage for the public is because Henderson Lewis delivers these in his superintendent's report, which is not an action item, the public is not allowed to comment. Now, if the school district is saying, we're going to close your school, you don't get to have a say, or you don't get to have a public comment unless the board decides to take up Take it up, right. Yeah, Mm. and and when we say it's not an action item it's a legalistic term um it just means that they're not taking a vote on it i mean, it's hard to say that an action isn't being taken he's 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 announcing a decision that is a major action that involves the movement of millions of taxpayer dollars and possibly thousands of students and families whose lives are being disrupted and and simply because the law says that that this is not something that the board has to take an automatic vote on it just means that the, the, the public is not given the right to, to say anything about it. It's a very interesting system. Is it a surprise that there was only one school that he re- recommended denying charter? It is and it isn't a surprise. There were five schools that had grades that were, or academic performance that you could say were of concern, you know, D's or F's in certain areas of their performance. Um, and so... They went through the comprehensive review process, which the district expanded this year in light of the pandemic. Um, The pandemic also caused the cancellation of standardized testing, so we don't have new academic information for these schools. The fact that it wasn't all one way or all the other is surprising, I think. Um, I think maybe the district feels a little bit of pressure to, you know, close the lowest performing school because, you know, research... Uh, from the Education Research Alliance and other groups does show that if you close the lowest performing school, you know, you'll push kids into higher performing schools or you hope that you will. There's a little bit of education reform logic probably going into this, which is that you close the lowest performing school. But you have the CEO of Crocker saying, hey, this is this is an insane year. We didn't get to show what we did last year, which was better than what we did the year before. Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, you know, to to someone who's for, for, for someone who's been observing this um, at, at a slightly more removed distance than Marta, that uh, it, it, you know historically speaking, it's sort of surprising that it's such a low number. We've seen past years where they had much higher numbers of, of uh, declining to renews. Um, 
with a much lower number of overall schools that were up for renewal. So a much higher percentage in past years of schools that that whose whose you know charter boards were going to be shuttered. But on the other hand, you know they had been uh, more than hinting; they had been passing policy to suggest that it was going to be a very different process this year. Um, schools, instead of, uh, you know, s- schools that were sort of on the brink based on past year performance, not this past year because there were no performance scores, but the year before that, it went into a, a newly created comprehensive review process rather than rather than um, just the normal system, which is, you know, just a rec- recommendation that's mostly based on on the performance score. But could you talk a little bit about the comprehensive review process? Yeah, and so just to clarify, the comprehensive review did exist before, but what they did this year was expand it to more schools. Um, And basically, it includes uh, more qualitative data. Um, It includes staff interviews. It includes conversation with the school board, the charter school board. It includes looking at other metrics at the school. So it's meant to be a more qualitative and, you know, observational process. So I do think in that regard, or, or... I know in that regard that uh, Crocker is disappointed because they think they think a that the process was not transparent. They say they didn't know what the district wanted going into these meetings during the comprehensive review. They also said the comprehensive review was, you know, very intensely involved in kind of this month long process that involved showing lots of different metrics to them and hosting meetings and all of this. And you know, they just think that they didn't really know what was going to happen going into it. And now on the other side with the recommendation, they want to be able to make their case with everything they presented during that review process. And they haven't been able to publicly do that since the results came out. What does make this really interesting is that the one interim board member right now, Priscilla Jackson, uh, helped reopen Crocker after Hurricane Katrina. And you can tell she has a passion for the school. Um, at the At the meeting on Tuesday, you know, she, she publicly stated that she disagreed with the superintendent. So that that could be an interesting uh, point next week. Mm. Yeah, getting that school board vote is a pretty high bar, um, as we found out last year. Last year, there was a vote where there were only six members. Pr- there was an override vote where there were only six school board members present. Four of them did vote in favor of overriding the recommendation, but... Uh, they, they needed to get to five, even even if they did have two-thirds of, of, uh, of school board members who were there voting in favor. Wow. Just to, you know, remark personally, it's tough that it, this always comes around the holidays. The school district doesn't like to say that they're closing a school, but, um, you know, and, and what the superintendent has said is that Cracker will remain open, but it would be taken over by another charter group. Um, and I think what people need to know there is that, like, even though that will likely mean that students, or that means generally, and in the past we've seen students keep their seats, that doesn't necessarily mean that staff keep their jobs. So that's a that's a tough thing to hear this time of year. And and it's it's all in the details too. A lot of this is dependent on a on an agreement that they've yet to reach with with a with a with a charter board. Yep. The other one interesting thing about Crocker is that um, it is a school that was created by former Orleans Parish School Board member Ben Kleben, um, who departed in June. And he started the group New Orleans College Prep, which runs Crocker and also another school, Cohen. Um, they used to run an additional school that was taken away from them because it was also failing. So, you know, you kind of start to see these patterns in charter groups that the charter groups that are losing their schools, um, like I would say like Renew and here like New Orleans College Prep, 
And then the charter groups that are getting a whole lot bigger, like Inspire, KIPP, and First Line. So it begins the scramble probably for the entire student body and staff to, to try to figure out what they're going to do for 21-22. Right. And I think it's also important, and the district knows this, that you want to tell them, you want to know who's running your school as soon as possible. Right. Because at the end of January is when you when you can apply to go to a new school. Yeah, the, the one app de- deadline is approaching quickly. Right. right. So if you want to call this a choice system, people need to know who's running their school next year so they can choose to stay there or choose to go. Right. As you said, tough, tough news at the holidays. Thanks for all your reporting, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.